Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 123 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel to give you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow us and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Stay tuned until the end of the program, where we're also going to share some exciting offers. And please feel free to share this with people who you know, who will also find it of interest. Today's program is terribly important and something we broadcast as an emergency uh, program this week in light of the invasion uh, by Russia of Ukraine. And I am very pleased to invite back a special guest who I was texting the other day to see if maybe he would be free to record something together. And that's how this conversation began. I didn't sleep real well, was up very early Friday morning, and I texted Elliot and said, hey, how would you like to uh, do a podcast recording on Sunday? And he said, sure. And then I said, well, as long as we're doing that, how about open it up to some people and they can join us live because this is really a hot topic. And anyway, between now and Thursday, when this goes live, who knows what's going to have changed in, uh, in Ukraine and with Russia. And, and loss has been changing all day today. So with that, let me just take a minute to introduce, for those of you who don't know, let me introduce our very special guest, and I think fourth time returnee to Inspiration from Zion, Major Elliot Chodoff, is reserve uh, officer in the IDF and a political and military analyst specializing in the Middle East and the global war on terror, and the intersection, of course, of these three. He's a decorated officer, a respected speaker, and a frequently published commentator in a wide range of news and media sites and journals. And personally, I always like to say this because it's so true, and for those, I know a lot of people joining us today uh, know Elliot, engage with Elliot, and know this to be true, but for those who don't, one of the things I like, he's not just knowledgeable, but he's as personally warm and outgoing as he is thoughtful and serious. Uh, and, and, I, and I love that about that, about him and about having these conversations. Elliot is the founder of the Israel Strategic Solutions. He has served in the IDF for 35 years and from 2002 until 2011 was co-director of the Fieldcraft Project in the Office of Chief of Doctrine, Infantry, and Paratroops. He served as the Deputy Chief of Staff for Population of the Home Front Command's Northern Region, where he lives, and is, a, is currently the Population Officer of the Northern Command. He also served in active duty during the 2006 Second Lebanon War and in Gush Katif in Gaza during the 2005 Gaza disengagement. He was a member of the rescue team in the aftermath of the 2004 bombing at the Taba Hilton and in the 2010 Carmel Forest fires that we experienced here in Israel. 
Elliot's a native of New York. He has a bachelor's degree from SUNY Stony Brook and a master's in sociology from the University of Chicago. And currently, he's completing his PhD in international relations at Bar-Ilan University. As I mentioned, he lives in the Galilee. He's a licensed tour guide and leads educational tours that are now finally, thank God, coming back to Israel. Yeah. And and, I, and as I was preparing today, Elliot, you're, you've got a great uh, social media presence. And often, in addition to showing your gorgeous uh, son and how he's growing up, you're always showing things that you got on the grill and what you're drinking accompanying accompanying with whatever's on the That's grill. That's the most important stuff. Well, I was just going to say that. And, and I feel like we're in, in the middle of the Godfather movie where Michael Corleone keeps saying, I'm trying to get out, but they pull me back in because you and I have never had a conversation about the good stuff. We're only right. talking about the stuff for which you, you are an accredited expert and not just a uh, social media and culinary expert. So maybe one day we'll have a lighthearted moment and be able to have you come back for a conversation like that. But for now, Elliot, welcome back. And thanks for making time late at night again as we host this, uh, this episode of uh, Inspiration from Zion. My pleasure. So I want to get started. Uh, but before I do, just a, a quick announcement. A number of people have been texting and emailing and saying, well, other than prayer, what can we do to help? And there were a, a great number of questions that were submitted before this. And I want to ask for those who are following on the Zoom, um, even though we are recording this as a, as a podcast, uh, also underscore to please put any questions in the chat or the Q&A, and we'll try to get to them and or, or integrate them. But anyone who's interested in helping out, um, we, we began today a four-prong campaign. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of people doing fake things, but I felt that there was an opportunity to step in because there are organizations that are asking for money and not really doing the work that they're asking for. And I'm not a big fan of that. So anyone who wants to go to love.genesis123.co, you can make a donation, send your prayers in writing. And we have a four-pronged uh, program to help with the immigration and absorption of uh, Jews from Ukraine to Israel, to help provide whatever provisions we can in Ukraine as Passover is approaching. And in the next couple of weeks, it's going to be critical as far as getting um, all those provisions dispersed to the Jewish communities that currently are in a state of war. And finally, and I think this is no less significant than any anything else, to provide resources for the remaining righteous Gentiles and their families, those people who during the Holocaust 75 years ago, yeah, 75 years ago, um, helped save the lives of the, of the relatives of those Jews who are stuck in, in Ukraine now in the middle of this uh, in the middle of this war zone. So anyone who would like to participate, um, please go to love.genesis123.co. Now, Elliot, before we get into the specifics about what's going on with Israel and, and, and the whole all-out military campaign by Russia, I always fell, and you and I have discussed this a little bit, when there's a war going on here, we are, of course, dealing with the, out, with, with the impact of that war but other people are looking at it from the outside, learning from it and analyzing it. How did we do? And of course, criticizing us, uh, whether we do well or not. And now I feel, wow, this is refreshing. And I, and I kind of mean that in a, in a, in a, right in the way that it's a little bit of a joke, but now there's a war somewhere else and it's an unprovoked yes. war and something's going on and people are looking at this conflict 
wh- how how uh, Russia's strategy and its uh, and its equipment and and um, manpower are working. You, the Ukraine's defense. Um, all, all of this is is unique. Do you have any comments? We're, we're a couple of days into this ground assault with missiles and air. What's going on there, and how? What's your assessment? Well, first of all, um, I would let's start by start with this. the The Ukrainian military is doing far better than anyone would have predicted against the Russians. And I wouldn't have predicted it, although I wouldn't have ruled it out. There's a one key that ver- is very often missed in strategic military assessment. Uh, there happens to be a field that I, I wrote my master's thesis on. And that, that's, that's the issue of, of cohesion in combat. In other words, how well do the troops actually hang in there, stick in there, and stick to their mission? And a second sort of related topic is resiliency. In other words, it's good, it's okay to be cohesive, but how well do you survive that first hit with the enemy uh, and then come back and, and, and hit them again? Now, one of the interesting things about the those two topics is you can't model them and you can't predict them. In other words, you can you can measure how many tanks a side has and how many artillery pieces and how many planes, and I'm sure anybody who's been, been following this, whether in the news or social media, all sorts of charts have been put up, which are also a, a bit false, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Okay. Not that they're lying, they're just, they're, there's an inaccuracy built in. But until it actually happens, you don't know how, the, how well troops are going to perform. And what we've seen over the past few days is that the Ukrainian military is performing extremely well by the measures that I'm looking at, which is combat cohesion and combat resiliency. They're sticking out, they're hanging in there, and they're taking on the Russians. The flip side of that is that it looks like the Russians are not doing so well in those categories. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here because it's very, very hard to do serious analysis in real time. Good analysis is, as, as, as you know, I... I don't believe in prophecy, uh, not, not, not in this business. Um, <laughs> theology, yes, not here. And I'm, I'm a, a great follower and, and disciple of the two political philosophers, Winston Churchill and Yogi Berra, who <laughs> both said uh, in their own way, it's best to prophesy about things that have already happened. Uh, look, real analysis has to wait and see till all the, you know, all the data, core, a good, good amount of data comes in. So I'm going to go on a, on a bit of a limb here. It looks to me like the Russians made a mistake very, very similar to the mistake that the Egyptians made in 1967. Interesting. And that is that they, and, and I, I think it starts from the top. In other words, what I'm about to say, I think, is what Putin believes, and which is what, in parallel, what Nasser believed in 1967 fell into his own propaganda and then transmitted it, you know, reflected it down to the troops. And I'll stay on the Putin side, and if you want, I can give you the analogy to, to the Egyptian side. Ukraine is not a real country. It has no legitimacy. Its leadership is bogus. 
most of the population, again, I, I want to repeat, this is his thinking, not what, yeah, I, what I believe, right? The population is largely Russian-speaking, Russian-identifying, and all we need to do is roll in, and the whole thing is just going to fall apart. And the troops were told, and I, this is a guess, not a, it's an educated guess, but a guess. All you got to do is roll down the road, and the whole thing is just going to collapse like a house of cards. When it didn't happen, oh my goodness, now what do we do? This isn't what we signed up for. We were told we were going to a party. <laughs> and that is very, very similar to what happened to the Egyptians on the first and second days of the Six-Day War and caused utter collapse of their army. Correct. Now, I want to add to that that in 2022, we are well along on a technological, military technological track that has given the individual soldier far more destructive firepower capability than the individual has ever had before in history. Okay, great comment. Okay. Uh, the tank was the arbiter dictator of the battlefield in 1939, 1940, 1941. By the end of World War II, there were, there were rudimentary anti-tank weapons, but they were rudimentary and very, very limited. We'll talk about the American bazooka, etc. Don't have to go into the details. By the Yom Kippur War of 1973, there were anti-tank missiles, but they also had limited value for a whole bunch of reasons. And again, if, if people are okay. interested, you can ask, but just take it at face value. Today, an individual soldier at ranges way beyond a tank crew's ability to identify them and outside the range of tanks supporting infantry can fire a missile and knock out a tank and walk away. That's key. Yeah. It's not a suicide mission. Right. And the Ukrainians have them. As a matter of fact, uh, just an interesting trivial side note: the the weapon that we've been seeing a lot of. I don't know how much how many clips you've you've been watching, but there are a bunch of them that have gone up. The Ukrainians are being very good about you know cell cell phone videoing their their successes. Yes. Uh, the most prominent weapon that they're using at the moment is called the Panzerfaust III. It's a German weapon that is extremely effective out to about 900 meters, which is when you think about it's 900 yards for those who are scoring in, in, in right. English close enough, um, which is far enough away for an individual to hide. Correct. Not yeah, Not be visible at all. Right. It, it guides itself. It's, it's a fire and forget weapon, which means unlike the Sager of 73, the gunner, the shooter doesn't have to stay there and wait until it hits. It locks on its own and then goes. It's produced by a company called Nobel Dynamite Works. That's right. The guy who won the Nobel Prize, who created the Nobel Prize, excuse me, Mr. Nobel got it for what, what got his wealth from inventing dynamite. That company still exists. And it's owned by Rafael, the Israeli military oh. armaments 
company that it bought, it's in Germany, and it bought it in order to produce the Israeli missile, the Spike, for the German army. Wow, very interesting. So there's still an opportunity to blame the Jews? Always. Okay. All right. Always. Um, but you know that Zelensky is a fascist Zionist. That's what they're telling <laughs> right. us. Cor- Corbin's, Corbin's people are saying that. <laughs> um, okay. In any event, those and others, and th- there's other stuff that's being sent in, provide sort of to, to crank it back, provide the individual if he's got the wherewithal, and it's more than training because there's will involved here as well. If he's willing to stand up to the tank, they're taking them out. Yes. Now, no army in the world, and I'm talking about now from the Russian perspective, can trade two or three tanks for one enemy soldier. No. It just doesn't work. No. So that's Number, problem number one, apparently, now here again, the, there are a lot of reports coming out, and you know, in war, truth is the first casualty, so I don't 100% believe the Ukrainians, but I 100% don't believe the Russians. <laughs> okay, uh, so I don't know if, they're ca- if the casualty and, and, and destruction figures are correct, and, and in war, even with the best of intentions, estimates are, are usually skewed. Uh, but nonetheless, it looks very much like the Russians have gotten a bloody nose. Their logistics are not up to par. Apparently, their training is not up to par. And what they thought was going to be a rollover is not. I just want to add one, one other point. Uh, if you, if you look at the comparative numbers of the Russian armed forces capability versus the Ukrainians, you might ask yourself, well, how can Ukraine stand up to them? They're you know, three or four to one outnumbered. But let's not forget, the Russians cannot commit their entire armed force to Ukraine. Right. Ukraine is committing its entire armed force to its defense. That's a good point. It's a very good so point. The actual relative forces on the battlefield are much closer to even than sort of the, the overall balance of the two countries. Now, I, I don't remember when she said it, but you used your analogy of the uh, uh, Six-Day War, 1967. Um, I don't remember when Golda Meir had her famous quote that Israel has a secret weapon, we have nowhere else to go. The right. Ukrainians are in the same situation. They're, yes. I mean, this is the defense for their country, and it's, it's entirely possible for Russian soldiers to say oh yeah okay that's a good idea vladimir but uh, what are we doing here right yeah let's go back to moscow and drink the vodka sure look the that that whole issue is appears in the literature it's raised in numerous cases including america and vietnam of how powerful countries are defeated by weaker countries in or I'll put it a different way. How weaker countries win wars against more powerful countries. Okay. And one of the answers is that balance of power matters less than balance of interest. Yeah. So obviously Ukraine means more to the Ukrainians than it does to the Russians. Correct. Just as Vietnam meant more to the Vietnamese than it did to the Americans. Excellent. 
Okay, and that has to be taken into account. Now, it's not the only answer, right? There's no single answer, but it's a balancing one that goes that that mitigates the question: How does a country like Ukraine even have the chutzpah to stand up to the Russians? Right, right. Uh, because it's theirs. Yeah. Okay. And here, here I've, I've got to say, you know what? I I don't know how it's going to end up, and I don't know where where he's going to end up. But Zelensky certainly produced the quote so far of the century, as far as I'm concerned. Which was that? When Biden offered him asylum and he said, the war is here, but I, I need ammunition, not a ride. Right. right. That, that's got to go up in banners everywhere. Yeah. That, that's a Churchill statement, as far yes, as I'm concerned. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, he's a, he's a performer. So uh, he is. He, he, was he Churchill. I want to take just a moment to remind you not to miss out on winning a free book about Israel from Jonathan's bookshelf. Just follow Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and share the link to this program. Each time you share this, you'll be entered into our monthly drawing to receive an important book from my own collection that you're going to want to have for your own library. Good. So let's let's move. This is excellent. I mean, we we could spend all night talking just about about that, but let's bring it back closer to home. Um, okay. Israel's been treading really lightly. Uh, yes. We are the, probably the one most harsh public comment by a senior uh, uh, Israeli official was um, Foreign Minister Yair Lapid last week, uh, right. and and the Russians called in the the Israeli ambassador, chewed him out, and and then. Um, conveniently, I think I, don't, I think it was a tweet, but I don't I don't know how it was communicated. Uh, just reminded us that the Golan Heights is not in fact Israel, right. but it's Syria. Um, and and yet the Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister Bennett, has been relatively low key. We're playing we're not playing one side off the other. And and there was an anonymous statement by some senior official that we're not getting involved. Um, but then of course. The Ukrainian president said Israel should mediate. And if I if it's correct what I read today, even Bennett and Putin had a conversation about yes. about Prime Minister Bennett, of all people in the world, not in a bad way, just how, how unusual. Here's a guy who's right. been prime minister for seven months, that he's being called in to mediate a conflict, an all-out war. What's behind all of this that Israel has been as uh, we're going to get, get into the whole Syrian thing, but but why has Israel been playing it quiet and how could that calculation was that even part of the plan to get in there and mediate no i don't think so but let let, let me start from the end of that because i okay. I, I think there's a, there, there's a critical point here zelensky probably trusts bennett more than he trusts the west okay in other words his as far as as ukraine is concerned i mean there's deep history here let's not forget in the 90s, Ukraine was induced to give up its nuclear arsenal in return for Western guarantees. Right. Okay. Um, you know, Western guarantees are even better than Western promises. Yeah, that and a quarter will get you on the subway. If On a, on a good day. Not anymore, mm-hmm. I don't think. No. I think you're dating yourself along with me. <laughs> uh, okay. So he doesn't trust these guys. He does... He's Jewish. He's got some relationship with Israel. Um, I think he trusts Bennett. 
Bennett has, Israel has a, an open communications line with Russia. And that's, that, that's going to bring me back to full circle. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I should also point out, uh, Michael Oren published something today, oh. basically saying that with, with all of it, Israel should come out and condemn Russia. Okay. Now, here's the thing. All this condemnation stuff is very nice, but it's words. Right. And we're sending a lot of humanitarian aid to Ukraine right now. Yep. Israel is. Yeah. In other words, we're we're stepping in. We've we've stated that we're we stand by and with Ukraine without actually explicitly condemning Russia. Now, does that really matter to the Russians? It does. Does it matter in the grand scheme of whether the Russians are going to attack Kiev tomorrow Kiev tomorrow morning? No, it doesn't. We are facing Russian forces in Syria. And they've, over the past couple of months, taken a much more active role in supporting the Syrians against us. Now, our issue is not with the Syrians, but it's with Syria as a base for Iran, as a base for Hezbollah. And we've been striking targets almost every night. According to foreign sources. Of course. Uh, I hear the planes. <laughs> okay. Um, the Russians are on are are upset about that for three reasons. First of all, their presence in Syria has to do with their interest in the Eastern Mediterranean. Right. Okay. And I don't know if you saw the um, the report a couple of days ago. There's a 16 ship Russian fleet that is confronting. American, Italian, and French aircraft carrier task forces in the Mediterranean. That this is these are out of Tartus in Syria. Right. They have air assets there. They have ground assets. We are, and this has been known for decades, back into the Cold War, to the into the seventies. We are America's unsinkable aircraft carrier in the Eastern Mediterranean. We know it, they know it, the Americans know it, the Americans know that the Russians know that we know that the Russians know the Americans. It's like everybody knows. And we are a bone in their throats because an unsinkable aircraft carrier is a very, very bad thing for your adversary to have only a few miles away in in combat terms. Correct. From your most important base in the Mediterranean. Right. So that's number one. Number two... Syrian stability is important for them because they would rather have Tartus in a stable Syria than an unstable Syria. It's one of the reasons they shored up the Assad regime. Correct. Three, and not to be underestimated, for the past quite a few years, we have been making a mockery of Russian air defense systems that they've provided to the Syrians and Iranians in Syria. A mockery. We have been striking targets night after night. I'm not going to say seven nights a week, but night after night. Yes. And in the course of the past five years, they've managed to shoot down one plane, which crashed in Israel. The the two crew members got out. In other words, their score on this is not really impressive. It's 
embarrassing. Well, let now, me let me let me just interject there because you you're raising a point I've thought about for a while. Are the Russians really manning Syria's air defense? They're providing no, they, the the hardware, or they're are, stuff. well, but are they or, or, or are they letting Israel do it? Are, is this just sort of a wink? No, 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 no. The they've sold it to the Iranians and the Syrians. They've trained them in its use. The stuff is supposed to be reasonably foolproof, but you know, fools are pretty ingenious on their own accord. <laughs> Um, and we're just, we're outdoing them. We're outdoing them electronically. We're outdoing them tactically. We're outdoing all sorts of stuff. And when they get really nasty, like a couple of weeks ago, when they fired a missile that blew up over Samaria, we destroyed the, we destroyed the air defense base. In other words, what we've basically been saying to them for the past five years plus is that, look, we're not going to go after your air defenses because they don't really bother us. We're, we're we're striking at will wherever, whenever, and running circles around you. Uh, they've managed to shoot down two planes, the Syrians, one Israeli and one Russian. Right. Okay. That's not a really good average. No, it's not. And that looks bad. When your clients are that incompetent with your technology, it just doesn't look good. So the Russians started make, making noise a few weeks ago, and they started flying joint sorties with the Syrians. And we started flying circles around. So on the one hand, now let's come back to, to your original question. On the one hand, we don't want to poke them too hard. Because you know what? There's Putin, for all his cold, calculating, KGB colonel background, is still a human being. And you know what? If you, if you poke a human being enough, just like a bear, He's also a bear, right? He's going to turn around and come back at you. And yeah. we don't need that. What's really interesting is today the Russians announced that they are continuing um, commun open communication interaction with us and they will not get in our way in Syria. That's correct. That was, that was a very interesting uh, comment. Why, why even make that comment? Why not okay. just... I, I will bet, again, I don't know. This is real time and you know, there's no stuff coming out on this yet. I'll bet that was a quid pro quo for don't condemn us. Uh -huh. It's also based on the fact that right now, the last thing Putin needs is to get drawn into an inadvertent conflict in the Middle East with us. Because right now he's got nothing to spare. And if he pokes us too hard, we're going to kick him out of the Middle East. Well, that's a very interesting statement because... You're talking about one of the largest and most powerful, theoretically, militaries in the world. And, and that to even think that Putin would be worried about Israel, either capability or having the chutzpah to do that. But look, look at where he is. This comes back to what I said earlier about being you, you can't just look. So Russian military looks like this. Israel military looks like this. Look where Putin is right now. He's up to his eyeballs in the Ukraine and it's not looking good. Right. NATO, for all of its abamaya, is moving. There are American troops in Poland. Everybody's looking at him. He doesn't know where this is going to go. And here, here's, he's, he's right. This thing could get out of hand. We all hope it doesn't. But it wouldn't be the first time in history that a war, you know, 
Churchill, and in case it's not obvious, I'm, I'm a great Churchill fan. Churchill famously said, everybody knows how to start a war. Nobody knows how to end one. Right. Okay. And the last thing Putin needs right now is to get into some completely unintended, inadvertent mess here with us when we see it as an opportunity. In other words, we, we might have held back under other circumstances. Yeah. But now it's like, all right, let, let's let it spiral up and let's see what you can do against the Israeli Air Force with no backup whatsoever. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that in the positive sense. I'm okay, and certainly not a recommendation, but that's got to be part of Putin's calculation. You're, and you're, yeah, you're giving him credit for some strategic thinking, but okay. I give him credit for a lot of strategic thinking. That doesn't mean he won't make mistakes. Got but it. This, okay, the, in, in other words, calculating it out is not the same thing as guaranteeing a good outcome. Okay, a, a good decision is not only measured by outcome, and I'll, I'll give you a very, very simple one uh, for listeners who are familiar with the extremely complicated game of blackjack. 21. Yeah. Okay, 21 is, is the highest score. 22, you lose. Right. Right? Oh, there we go. Okay. What if you have a 12? And those who really know the game don't don't start it well. It depends on just taking it, you know, flat. If you've got a 12, you take another card. 12 is a losing hand. If you pull a picture or a 10, you lose. Pictures nice. are worth 10. Okay? Nice. That doesn't mean you made a bad decision. It may, means that the outcome was not what you calculate. Uh, okay. Okay. Good. Good. Okay? So I give Putin a lot of credit for calculation. That doesn't mean that he doesn't make mistakes, and it doesn't mean that the outcome doesn't work according to the way he calculated. Excellent. Okay, good. Let, 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 let's come back to our interest in Syria. Yes, you, you've you've projected something that I never would have considered, with the, which would this being escalating to a point that Israel would would take Russia on and 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 push him out. Low probability, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, fair enough. Uh, could, could potentially be if, if Russia felt it needed to pull some troops um, and planes from here to pull them back to Ukraine and come in from the south. I don't know, but uh, but what what are our bottom line interests in Syria and where does Russia fit into that? Okay, so so here one of the reasons that we actually can come to some sort of modus vivendi with Russia and Syria is that we don't really have a conflict of interest. Okay, good. Uh, there may be, there are conflicts, but it's not a conflict of interest. Their interest is maintaining their base in Syria because they're looking to the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, the Americans, NATO. They're looking westward. Syria for them is, is a platform. And as I said earlier, they'd rather that platform be stable. Uh, although Putin could live with it uh, unstable, preferable stable. Our issue with Syria at the moment has very little to do with Syria. Syria doesn't have anywhere near the power to threaten us. That doesn't mean that it won't in five years or 10 years or 15 years. But right now, Syria is not a player vis-a-vis -vis Israel. Right. But the Syrian, Syrian territory 
is a playground of the Iranians who have two interests, three if you add a port on the Mediterranean, but from our direct perspective, they have two interests. One is to supply Hezbollah with more and more advanced weaponry to threaten us in a higher level and in a more effective way, and to establish their own front base against us to our east, in other words, facing the Golan. And for that, they've committed the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Quds Force to do both. And we have basically been beating them up for the past five years. The problem with it is that it's not working. It's what can very simply be referred to as a brilliant tactical success and a virtual total strategic failure. It being what that's not working? Our, our, our beating them up. Okay. In other words, the, the missions are, are succeeding. The Air Force is being sent up to hit targets, and the Air Force is taking out the targets that is being sent up to hit. Almost as close to 100% as you could possibly be in, in an imperfect world. Okay. Okay. Uh, there have been no glaring failures. As I said, one plane was shot down a number of years ago by a near miss. The pilot performed brilliantly, got the plane back over Israel. They parachuted into Israel. In other words, the total cost so far has been negligible from the Israeli side and the impact that it's had tactically. In other words, taking out the targets that it's told to take out, the Air Force has been brilliant. But the strategic objective of both stopping the Iranians in Syria and totally stopping the flow of advanced weaponry to Hezbollah has failed. Because we're not getting all of it. We're getting some of it. We can't get all of it. It's too much. Correct. Too many routes, air, sea, land, whatever. So we're doing a lot of damage. And I'll say this about the, the Iranian nuclear capabilities as well that, that we've been working against now for well over a decade. Successfully, tactically, we're not setting them back, we're slowing them down. Correct. And slowing them down just means it'll take them a little bit longer, but they're, con they're, they're still progressing toward their objective. Do you think Russia wants Iran out of Syria or are they content to leave Iran alone? I think Russia at this point would prefer Iran out of Syria, but they don't care that much. They let the Iranians do a lot of their dirty work in eastern Syria back in the day. Right. But that job is done. Right. So now they're, now they're an irritant, but not enough of one, certainly not today. Not enough of one for Russia to get terribly excited over. And let's let's add another factor to it. Napoleon, who knew a little bit about this business, said sometimes you do things just to irritate your enemy. The Iranians are an irritant to the Americans. They're an irritant to the West. And in that they're doing some of Putin's business work Got it. on their on their own. Good. And for him, that, that's enough of an asset. In other words, he, he doesn't have to love them. He doesn't have to support them. Uh, he's just, 
he can ignore them essentially. And, and as long as they're not in a direct conflict. That, right. And there's no immediate reason for that. I think Putin basically gets the attitude. If, if he has to, he'll nuke them. He doesn't care. Okay. Well, that, that, that leads to a, a, a question. I wanted to pivot in a different direction to talk about Iran. And, but, but as long as you brought up the nuke word, Putin, as of today, when this comes out on the podcast in a couple of days, who knows what will be. But as of today, he's called, uh, he, he's, he's got all his nuclear forces ready on, uh, on high alert. Is he, is he bluffing? Is he play, is he play, is he holding that 12 and, and, and really playing the, the hand or is he ready to pu- push a button? No, first of all, it's brinksmanship. It's signaling. Is he ready to push the button? I think he is, but I don't think he's going to. In other words, I don't I don't think he's doing it in order to prepare for nuclear war. If he was going to do that, he wouldn't have announced. Uh-huh. Okay, the announcement is to put the West, NATO, and everybody else into the frame of mind of I'm really serious. Okay. And obviously that it's a dangerous game because anytime you, you, you raise that, there, there's always that possibility of a mistake, of a spiral. Um, the West is, has, has been taking steps, not military steps, but taking steps against him. Uh, somebody just threw up the no-fly, no-fly zones, uh, not no-fly military zones, just not permitting Russian right. aircraft in, right. into their countries. Um, FedEx and UPS are not delivering to Russia. All those Amazon orders are not going to make it to Moscow. <laughs> um, look, he's he's going into negotiations, whether in good faith or not. I I, I wouldn't put a lot of weight on it. Right. Um, he's read The Godfather. And you don't go into negotiations smiling. You go into negotiations. You put the gun on the table and say, <laughs> let's talk. Okay. And I think that's what he's doing. And somebody also put up the, uh, in Hebrew, that, that the, 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 the boss has gone crazy or something like that. Um, Thomas Schelling, the, the Harvard Nobel Prize winning economist and strategist wrote, wrote a couple of very, very good books on strategy, talks about leaving something to chance or basically when you go into whether it for all intents and purposes, negotiation, confrontation, if your adversary can calculate down everything you're doing, you are in a weaker position. Okay. If there's a if there's a spot in there where they say this guy's completely crazy, crazy is incalculable. That puts you in a better position. Got it. Now I'm willing to bet that Putin is red shelling. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. And if not, he's doing it instinctively, which is just as good. <laughs> good. All right. Uh, well, but but here but here's another 
piece of strategy or, 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 or a factor I wanted to talk to you about. Um, there's a lot of talk about the perception. It's, it's U.S. weakness, but, but weakness across the board. You, you and I had a conversation on a webinar podcast uh, a couple of months back specifically regarding Iran, and, and we can't help but talk about the uh, kind of failed withdrawal from Afghanistan a few months before. Now, there, there's two issues to this I wanted to ask you about. First of all, is to what extent, I want to bring it in to talk to, about Iran in a minute, but to what extent is this perception of U.S. weakness motivating Putin? And, and then as, as our chief ally, being our Israel's chief ally, the U.S., how does that impact us if the U.S. is uh, coming across weak in international incident after international incident? Okay, so let me start with saying that it's not just perception. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that America is a weak country. But if we look at American military strength related to the overall mission that America has taken upon itself as a global superpower. American force has declined drastically over the past 30 years. And original sin, if you will, is Clinton's. And having said that, I will say I I blame him least of all from his presidency till today. Well, let me okay. explain what I mean. All right. When the Cold War ended, the United States military numbered 1.8 million personnel. The Gulf War of 1991 took place. America was able to fight it in part because the Soviet Union had collapsed. Uh-huh. And and budgets hadn't been cut. If you remember the Gulf War, 500,000 American troops were sent to Saudi Arabia and ultimately to liberate Kuwait. Right. Now, I'm going to throw those numbers back again because they're really important. 1.8 million in 1990, 91. 500,000 were used in the Gulf War. During the Clinton administration, the U.S. military was cut by 500,000. In other words, the 500,000 troops that were used in the Gulf War were cut from the American military in the 90s. Now, that was the period of there were two sort of grand philosophical, political philosophical approaches. One was espoused by Francis Fukuyama in a book called The End of History and the Last Man who basically said the Cold War is over. That's it. History is over. No more conflict. It was a kind of secular messianic approach to the world. And that was the the view of the Clinton administration. There aren't going to be any more wars, and we don't really need a strong military. The other approach was embodied by Samuel Huntington of Harvard, who wrote an article and then a book called The Clash of Civilizations, in which he essentially argued The Cold War is over. Now we have to look ahead to see where the next conflict fault lines are going to be because conflict is a constant. The variable is where the lines of conflict are. And he was, of course, greatly ridiculed by the liberal establishment. And I say liberal, I don't mean, you know, off the wall left, 
the, the, the mainstream liberal establishment. Why do I say that Clinton is the least responsible, even though he's the one who did it? Because when he did it, it made sense, at least okay. to his worldview. The person I blame most for where we are today is George W. Bush. Interesting. Who on September 12th, the day after 9-11, yeah. instead of brushing off FDR's speech of December 8th, 1941, a, day, a date that will live in infamy, we're at war, I'm paraphrasing, right? Here we go. Yes. Bush said, go shopping. Good point. And instead of getting up and saying, my fellow Americans, we're going into a war, we were attacked by a dastardly blah, 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 and I need 500,000 more troops to fight this war, and I need the budget for it, wow. and I'm opening recruiting offices, and I guarantee you, I guarantee you, yes, 500,000 Americans would have volunteered on the spot, Yes. and 20 years later, America would not have an exhausted military because its reserve and National Guard were overdeployed over the past 20 years in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. So today, you have an America, a U.S. Army of 10 divisions, down from 16. Let me give you just a very, very sim simple sense of scale since the Russian... Ukraine invasion is being compared to all sorts of World War II scenarios, right. Sudetenland and that sort of thing. When Hitler invaded Russia on June 22nd, 1941, Operation Barbarossa, yes. he, he invaded with 162 divisions. Whoa. The U.S. Army has 10. That includes covering Korea. Yeah garrisoning Hawaii, forces in Europe, and forces in the continental United States. The U.S. Army has no surplus force to fight. That's not very encouraging now, is it? No, which is why I say that the perception of weakness, first of all, is based on a reality, not of weak, but of relative weakness compared to its mission. Yes. Now add the bumbling of an Afghanistan withdrawal fiasco. And here I want yes. to be very clear. I'm not going into whether America should or should not have been in Afghanistan, Correct. whether it should have stayed or left. It was done. I'm boring. talking about having made the decision. The operation was a fiasco. Yes. And a guy like Putin looks at this and says, OK, these guys are just not, not a threat to me. I can mm -hmm. run circles around. Them. Now, he might be thinking differently today with his army not performing as well as he thought it would. But keep in mind also, and this, this is a, an age-old reality, when countries, when leaders decide to go to war, they go into a, a, a mindset of a variant of what is known as confirmation bias, also called undue optimism. In other words, you begin, you begin to look at everything in terms of supporting your decision to go to war. Yes. And I don't want to overdraw Nazi comparisons because I don't think it's a comparison to the Nazis. But Hitler, in January 1941, when his generals were begging him to give up on the Russian 
the idea of invading Russia, yeah. famously said to them, all, you, all we have to do is kick in the front door and the whole rotten Soviet edifice will come crashing down. He was slightly mistaken. He was slightly mistaken. And that kind of goes a little bit back to your uh, Six-Day War. I mean, it was a much more brutal, bloody right. battle. But... Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So, okay. that This is great. Let, let, let's pivot kind of to the, at least for me, what's the, the, the important thing as it relates to Israel, which is Iran. Iran's watching this from the sidelines right now. Iran is perceiving the same weakness added to the fact that a lot of people are saying that the the U.S. and the West are uh, running to try to make a deal at any cost. And and in fact, even as of today, they're sitting down again in Vienna with with Russia, Russia, right? With Russia, the Russia is the enemy now. And now we're sitting down. And honestly, when I, when I read that this afternoon, I was, I was taken aback by that whole notion. So that's still happening how how is iran looking at putin's you know i i think it's fair to say that friday morning when you and i arranged for this conversation um we probably both thought it was going to be much more of a, a simple walk in the park for putin to to make it into into central kiev but uh that that's not happening and maybe that's changing the iranians perception what's your what's your perception of the iranian perception okay so first first of all i was not convinced that, that putin was going to walk into kiev okay uh, here again you know in real time it, it's it's you don't bet a lot of money one way or the other but somebody even put up a comment on facebook uh, when, when we put up the thing about the webinar and somebody wrote a comment well by the time this happens kiev will have fallen oh i didn't catch that interesting and I answered, or not. <laughs> okay. This prediction stuff is really, really dangerous. Uh, so, look, the Iranians, I don't think really care much about how well, how well the Russians are doing, because the Iranians really don't care about the Russians. Right. They do understand the limitations of Western military power. And I think the Germans woke up today and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, this doesn't look so good. And they've, they declared that they're going to increase their defense spending. Yeah. By the way, just as an aside, about eight years ago, I was in China. It's a whole story in and of itself, giving some lectures. And I had coffee with a Polish general. And in the course of the conversation, I said to him, you know, I'm not convinced that we've seen the last Russian-German war. Wow. And he looked at me. He didn't argue with me. He said, but you understand what this means for Poland? <laughs> And I said, yes, I do, but that's your problem. I've got my own. Thank you very much. He didn't argue about it, though. It, it was a very, oh, yeah, okay. okay. So the Germans may be thinking that, too. Okay. Uh, but the bottom line is that at the moment, the West is in, ve- in a very, very poor position to intervene anywhere. And that includes, the, it includes Ukraine. In other words, here Putin calculated correctly. He's got proximity. He's got flanks. 10,000 American troops in Ukraine is not going to make a difference. No. So the Iranians are much more interested in the West's capabilities and intentions than Putin's. And the West has made very clear their capabilities are limited. 
Their intentions are even more limited. Yeah. They make a lot of noise, but the, the Iranians aren't interested in noise. The Iranians know how to negotiate better than any of these guys. They've been selling carpets in the markets for thousands of years. Correct. And I mean, even even the, the whole negotiations over another deal or not another deal with the Russians, without the Russians, anybody who believes that the Iranians care about signing a piece of paper, they don't intend to keep keep it from the from the get go. Correct. So they're watching all of this and laughing and saying, you know what? Here, I'll, I'll give you another another example of laughable. The West brings the Ukraine issue last Friday to the Security Council of the United Nations, which is chaired by Russia. Okay, excellent. And it's it, it, it's farcical. Yeah. And the Iranians are sitting and saying, these people are, are, are living in a world of farce. Farce, not Farsi. Not Farsi. They are living in Farsi. Yeah. Okay. Um, this gives them a great deal of confidence. So with their confidence, are, do you think that they're prepared to act up now? Or is it no. strategically advisable for them to sit it out still? They're not going to act until they have two or three nuclear weapons. Okay. What about through their proxies? Or as you say... No, proxies, they're going to they're push very hard. Okay. But not Hezbollah. They're not going to waste Hezbollah. Ah, that's, well, that's important. They're not going to waste Hezbollah. Hezbollah is going to poke and prod like with, with the drones. But remember, the drone on Friday, a week ago. Yes. Ten days ago now. Uh, that spent 20 minutes in Israeli airspace didn't do anything. In other words, it didn't drop anything. It didn't strike anything. So they're, they're poking, but not enough to elicit a heavy Israeli response. Well, because, and, and also that makes sense that they're not going to waste Hezbollah because exactly. they're the ones who are the serious, who can threaten us more seriously. And, and if we go in and take them out, that's going to cripple uh, it, one, their, their main flank. Yes, yes. But let me ask you a question. One of their flanks, I think, I don't know, five years ago, we wouldn't have had this conversation, is Yemen, the Houthis. The Houthis have been very bold and brazen, hitting Saudi right. Arabia, hitting yes. uh, Bahrain, hitting UAE. What's the probability? I mean, and, and that needs to care about that. Are we? Those gonna, countries are, don't have a victory option, right? We do against Hezbollah. Look, the Houthis for us are a major problem because if they start firing missiles into a lot, for example, what are we going to do? So we'll send an airstrike or two. If Hezbollah fires rockets into Israel, they're going to get the spectacular display of what it looks like to have Israeli armored divisions rolling on. Uh huh. Something that hasn't been seen in full sort of flood, certainly not since 1982 and probably not since 1973. Interesting. Interesting. And they know it. We've made it very clear. We've practiced it openly. So they're convinced that the next war is going to be the last one. They think they're going to win it. 
but they know that if they don't, they're not they're not coming out of it. Okay, and and, and Iran does not want to play. Going back to your blackjack analogy, but different game, they don't want to play the Hezbollah card yet. No, because their primary objective now is to gain nuclear capability. Okay, and they must get at least two or three, if not more, warheads before they're in a position to say we're nuclear. Got it. So so now that leads, someone just uh, posted a question about the window of opportunity to get a solid punch against Hezbollah and Iran, and that was going to go in that direction anyway. Everyone's looking at Ukraine. Nobody, it, it's very clear that you, you that if no one's really, I mean, they're, they're, they're some going through the motions vis-a-vis Ukraine. Russian aircraft can't fly over a lot of countries now. That's lovely. But reality is we know that we're, we're on our own. And, right. and so with the world focused on Russia and Ukraine and with the price of oil and gas as high as it is anyway, why, what's to prevent us from going in and, and uh, t- doing a, uh, uh, what's, what's the word? It's going out of my head, a preemptive strike. Preemptive? Yeah. Okay. So first of all, it wouldn't be preemptive. It would be preventive. Preventative. Okay. No. Okay. The Six-Day War was preemptive, preemptive, yes. literally to preempt. They were yes. ready to attack, and we struck first. Preventive is going much earlier. Now, first right. of all, that is diplomatically problematic. Now, I'm not saying that that alone is a veto, but that's something to take into account. I don't know, and I seriously don't know, that we are prepared as we would like to be okay. to strike now. Uh, there is an element of advantage in pushing something like this off as long as possible. From our side, from the Israeli side? Sure. Okay. Because the more you practice, the more force you build up, the, the better your technology gets. I'm talking about from our, our perspective. The, the Iranian targets are not getting any harder. In other words, going after them today doesn't offer a specific advantage as opposed to going after them in two months. Okay. The only real error would be in missing the indicators and being too late. Yes. I would say that the likelihood of that happening is low, not zero, obviously, but low. Uh, intelligence forces like ours, when told what to look for, we'll find it. Okay. And the bottom line is also, we don't want a war. There's always this, I call it creative procrastination. Um, you know, maybe something will happen. You know, maybe Messiah will come tomorrow and we can, we don't have to worry about it. Hmm. All right. Let's, let's <laughs> go for another option. Uh, now, you know what? Regime change. I don't see it happening in Iran. I really don't. But are you going to, are you going to ask me, is it impossible? No, it's not impossible. It's well, not if the impossible. Iranian regime collapses next week, it saves us a lot of bloodshed. Correct. But on the other hand, and I've said this for, for, for some time, if we're going to have the war anyway, and we're going to get, and we're going to get hit, we're going to get hit hard. There's no way we're going to take out all of yes. the Hezbollah right. rockets. Correct. Um, if it's going to happen, why, you know, why shouldn't we just rip that Band-Aid off and, and, and make it happen already? Okay, first, first of all, my guess, even if we were ready right now, we wouldn't do it in February. 
Okay, why? Because the weather is lousy. You you can have all sorts of weather issues messing you up. And if it involves a ground war, likewise, every region has its own sort of quirks. Okay. One of the reasons that Putin is moving now is because in another few weeks, there's going to be the spring thaw in Ukraine, yes. especially along the northern shore of the, of the Black Sea. And his armor, which isn't doing so well under the circumstances, is also going to get bogged down in mud. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. So there are seasonal factors. That's right. Got it. We okay. would, if, if you're going to launch an air campaign that has to be hard, short, sharp, and effective, you want to do it when you don't have the possibility of a winter storm messing up your operations. Okay. If you can choose that. Okay. Okay. So this those, has been very, that's very instructive. Those, those are all, all calculations. And well, but, but they're calculations. And if your assessment is that it doesn't matter now or in two months or potentially four months. Uh... Right. In other words, those all become part of your, the pros and cons of what you're doing. Right. With, with I think a basic default being, we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it, but if you look at what's, ha- if the world is distracted now, we don't know if that's going to be in a month yeah, or two months. You're right, but I, I don't think that I don't think that's a good enough, okay, reason to push it over. Again, I don't know. It's very possible the Air Force turned around and said, "You know what? We could do it if you force us, but if you give us another few months, we can give you a much better odds." Okay. Okay. And what I just said is pure speculation. Uh, we, we understood, but it's but it's 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 intelligent, educated speculation with more yes. more than anyone who's listening now. So um, so unless unless um, I don't know, the, the the Secretary of Defense in the U.S. Is, happens to be listening. I want to pause in the conversation for just a moment to invite you to join us in one of the really incredible programs that we do as part of the Genesis 123 Foundation. This year, we have been going out all throughout the Judean mountains to show love to soldiers who are stationed keeping us safe from the threat of terrorism. It doesn't matter if we're in a burning heat wave or temperatures below freezing before the wind chill. They are out there guarding strategic points that have a high risk of terrorism. And thanks to the support of many people like you, we are pleased to bring them homemade hot soup in the cold of winter, and cold drinks and sweet watermelon in the heat of summer. Any donation is meaningful and helps us to bless the soldiers. You can join us and donate at genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. That's genesis123.co slash bless a soldier. And when you do, you also have the opportunity to send along your own personal words of thanks and blessings to the soldiers guarding the land and protecting the people. Please join us. Um, let, let, let me, I want to just kind of wind down the con- the conversation. And, and, and as always, Elliot, incredible. Thank you. And, and I have to underscore to everyone who's listening, this is completely unscripted. I don't, I, I don't need to script it for you. And you are prepared for, for, for all of this and I, and always master it so well. But right, let's right. go into, fake it really well. You fake it really well. 
But let's talk about something that's not in your expertise. I, I, I even, after I made some notes today, um, re- reading reports that some people are saying there are as, many, as few as 200,000 Jews in Ukraine. So I've read someone say that there are many as half a million. Now someone I read after I wrote my notes today that there's as few as 60 to 120,000. I don't know how many Jews, and I don't know if we're counting Jewish people or descendants of Jewish people who are eligible to come to Israel under the law of return. But there seems to be, if, I, if, if I'm understanding this correctly, there's been a lot of talk about airlifting and bringing them here, but there doesn't seem to be any particular threat to the Jewish community. And the, you know, Putin's not a nice guy, but he's not coming in like, like the Nazis did to, to butcher the Jews. Correct. Do you see any particular, I'm missing anything. Is there any particular risk to the Jewish community? Do you think that there's going to be a particular wave of tens of thousands of Ukrainian Jews coming to Israel? Okay. Let, let, let's, let's try to make Passover's coming, right? So down the roads, make some Seder, make some order. Okay. Very nice. Um, so first of all, no, Putin is not Hitler. The Russian army is not the Nazis. There aren't going to be Einsatzgruppen following behind the Russians massacring Jews like at Babi Yar in September 41 and all along the front. There are no death camps. So the Jews per se of Ukraine are in, are not in a particularly Jewish danger. That's sort of as an overall. Second, having said that, if there is anarchy in the Ukraine, the Ukrainians can become can be a threat to the Jews. Uh, interesting. Good point. You say, but wait a minute, but they've got a Jewish president. Yeah, you know what? I I wouldn't I wouldn't write a lot of insurance on that. <laughs> um, anti-Semitism is a very, very, very strange beast. I'll give you two American examples to show you how strange it is. And, okay. And I'm not and I'm not draw, drawing American comparisons to Ukraine. Okay. And I'll give you an, a Ukrainian example as well. Richard Nixon was an avowed anti-Semite. His primary foreign policy advisor was Henry Kissinger. Correct. Harry Truman was an anti-Semite with a Jewish business partner who he did not permit into his house. Oh, I didn't know that. He never allowed a Jew in his house. Wow. When his secretary of the treasury, Morgenthau, came to meet him at his house, he met him on the porch and he said, Bess and I have never had a Jew in our house until now, and we're not going to start now. And they met on the porch. Wow. And yet Truman recognized Israel. Correct. So it's, let's, first of all, keep in mind that anti-Semitism, Nazism is an extreme form of anti-Semitism, but not all anti-Semitism is Nazism. Yes. And I say that analytically, not not forgivingly. Okay, good. Ukraine, which has a Jewish president, has a statue in its capital of Kiev to Khmelnytsky, 
Yes. The 17th century ma murderer, mass murderer yes. of Jews. Correct. Okay. So are they anti-Semites or aren't they anti-Semites? The answer is yes. Right. Okay. So are the Jews in danger there in in the case of anarchy or chaos? They might be. Um, by the way, when the Nazis rolled into Ukraine, as well as into the Baltic states, the Nazis had to stop pogroms. The locals were killing Jews before the Nazis got to them. So more likely, that's, that's all in the realm of possibility. More likely, the Jews of Ukraine will be endangered as many other people in Ukraine. Correct. By lawlessness, by a destroyed economy, by poverty. And they may feel that enough is enough and it's time to come to Israel. Okay. So I think that's that's a more likely scenario, although I don't rule out the first one. And that'll mean that it won't be a it won't be an Ethiopian or Yemen airlift situation. It'll be a much more organized, processed, call it bureaucratic, if you will. Yeah. It's much much closer to the Argentinian and French cases. Got it. Okay, excellent. Uh, uh, before I, I just want to wrap up with just one other question uh, that's coming back to your military expertise. Before I do, I mentioned at the outset of our conversation that we launched something just, just this week in order for people who are looking for a reliable place to give some money. First of all, I don't want to, th th that's not the objective here in this conversation. The objective was to educate and, and thank you, Elliot. We've done that. You've done that. Um, but people have been texting and emailing. What can we do other than prayer? I want to underscore, first of all, prayer is, is essential. Um, and, and I don't want anyone to, to think that that's not, but looking at what the needs are, um, we came up with a four prong campaign to support Aliyah, bringing Jews home to Israel. If that's happening, we will be in there. We will find the right uh, organizations to provide the money to and not those who say they're doing something and are not. Second of all, um, the absorption here, which is critical, absolutely critical, especially for people who didn't grow up necessarily as Zionists with the dream to come to Israel to be rescued and have their kids pulled out and have to come to a place where they don't know the culture and the language. We're going to help and facilitate that. Third, as you mentioned, Elliot, we've talked about a couple of times today, Passover is coming, and I don't know how this is going to impact. Maybe it'll be over by then, but certainly pr preparations in, in, in the strongest of communities are well underway for Passover in, in uh, a, a month, six, five weeks, six weeks, something like that. And, uh, and, and we're going to step in and help. And if that means shipping matzo or whatever we're going to need to do, we're going to take care of that. And, and I, and I, more I think about it, honestly, I, uh, one of the most important pillars, not that none of these, are, any of these are more or less important, but no less important than, the, than that is helping the righteous Gentiles and their families, the people who saved the Jewish population of Ukraine 80, 75 and 80 years ago. And, and therefore we have descendants of those Jews 
today. So I want to encourage anyone who is looking for a place to donate some money to, to please entrust the Genesis 123 Foundation with that. And you can go to love.genesis123.co. Uh, Elliot, last question for now. How can the current war be ended? Um, well, it can, it can end in a number of different ways. Let's start from a worst case scenario. The Russians can win. In other words, even with their poor performance and with the Ukraine, Ukrainians' good performance, they could possibly beat them down. And, and I, we started with cohesion and resilience. Uh, it could, it can crack. In other words, there's no, there's no guarantee that yesterday's performance will be tomorrow's performance. Correct. Um, second, it can, it can devolve into static situational attrition warfare where they just sit and slug it out for God knows how long. High intensity, low intensity, whatever. They, the negotiations that are working today can, can work. Um, Zelensky put very low probability on that, but again, I, I wouldn't take public statements that too high value. They're Correct. meant for their own spin. Uh, well, the Russians can run out of gas, literally and figuratively, and pack it up and go home. Hmm. That would, that is, I think, a reasonable possibility. I don't, I don't want to put odds on these too much. Um, but if they take, if they start taking losses, more losses than they have. They don't make progress. And there's all there's rising opposition in Russia to this. Putin might just declare victory and roll out. And that in a, a combination of, of the sanctions, the pressure from, from the rest of the world, uh, I would like to see the world step it up. I don't know why uh, why Russian Embassies and consulates are still open. Oh, excellent. They should be given 24 hours to pack up and, and get out. Um, why Aeroflot is still flying to Canada, for example. I mean, there, 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 there are a lot of holes that still haven't been plugged okay. to make Russia's collective national life difficult. So that people turn to Putin and say, you know what, what do we need this for? Enough is enough. Got so it. Th those are all possible end, end game scenarios. I'm not going to bet on, on anyone in particular because there are way too many variables. Well, we're, 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 we won't, we, you're not betting, we're not playing blackjack, and you're not a prophet. We've established all of those things. Amen. But, but, <laughs> but you've, you've um, shed a lot of light and, and knowledge on this uh, subject. And, and with something that's uh, changed I mean, in, in the last hour that we're speaking, who, who knows what could have happened. Uh, right. Everything and, I said uh, may be wrong. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I never would say that you're wrong. Uh, other people are wrong in, in doing the wrong, what you didn't say. Um, Elliot, this has been amazing. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate everyone who's sent some questions and sorry if we didn't get to all of them. I want to just uh, invite, and I apologize for not having done so at the outset, um, a, a good friend, um, Dr. Frank Lenahan, who's uh, who's with us 
from Luster, Montana. Um, uh, Dr. Frank Lenahan is a frequent visitor to Israel, a passionate Zionist, an ordained minister and, and pastor of the Luster Mennonite Brethren Church. And he served for six years on the board of directors of Bridges for Peace, which is a Christian ministry based here in Jerusalem. And everyone who works uh, building bridges between Jews and Christians here in Israel knows, loves, and respects Bridges for Peace and its uh, tremendous leadership and, and, um, and tentacles, and I say in a positive way, all around the world, like Frank. Um, Pastor Frank is a former U.S. Marine and Gulf War veteran, which is one of the reasons I especially asked him to participate and join us uh, tonight uh, to close us out in prayer. Um, his son, Timothy, is a U.S. Army combat engineer officer currently serving in the Middle East. Um, Pastor Frank, thank you for joining us. Um, I, I, I suspect that before you close this out in prayer, you've heard a lot. And as somebody who's, uh, I, I'll, I'll say former military, but you're probably never former. Um, you've got a lot to say and think. If there's any, Is there anything that you'd like to comment on before closing us out? Well, being a U.S. Marine, we are, of the branches of the military, the best at propaganda. Um, and I need the T-shirt that says, I need ammo and not a ride. That's right up there with First to Fight. That's right up there with Semper Fi. I need ammo, not a ride. So thank you for that, Elliot. Uh, obviously, much more learned than just that. Chesty Puller at Chelsea Reservoir. We're surrounded, sir. That's great. Now we can shoot in every direction. He says we got them right where we want them. They're, in, we front, want them. they're in behind. They're to the left or to the right. You can't miss. That's, That's right. another way to interpret that. That's absolutely right. So again, thank you so much, um, Jonathan, for the work that you're doing. Um, you know, one of the things that we say at Bridges for Peace is let us be your hands and feet in Israel. And uh, to date, we have brought in over 80,000 Jews to make Aliyah to Israel, many of them from the former Soviet Union. And if I had to guess, I would say a bulk of that probably is from the Ukraine. Um, according to my Google search, and of course, Google is all knowing, uh, there are approximately, if I'm not mistaken, and feel free to correct me, there are about a half a million uh, Israeli Jews that were born in the Ukraine. That's, uh, that's a big number. And yeah. then, of course, you've got, um, by different estimates, 200,000 uh, Jews in Ukraine today. And so we know that Israel's heart is connected with what's going on in, in, in Ukraine. And um, wow, there's just, we're living in dynamic times. The very fact that I'm here with you today as an ordained Protestant minister, talking to uh, two very articulate, intelligent uh, uh, Jewish, re uh, you know, conservative religious Jews. Uh, this is awesome. I just, I, I can't imagine living at a more exciting time. But having said that, it is heavy, the topics that we're talking about. Um, and so with that, with Jonathan's permission, let me do two things real quick. And that is, first of all, for those of you who are still listening and might listen at a future date, Support Genesis 1-2-3. Support the work that Jonathan is spearheading in, in Israel. Let him be your hands and feet in the land and to see his heart of wanting to build bridges between Christians and Jews and to strengthen Israel. I think that's, uh, that's, that's why we're here. So again, feel free to donate uh, to Genesis 1-2-3 and to support the work. And what I love about what Jonathan is doing is I know that there's not a lot of overhead on this. And so the funds that are given go right to where they're supposed to go to work. And that is awesome. 
So with that, and also with Jonathan's permission, he has asked me to pray, and it's a privilege to do that. And, uh, you know, we can pontificate and we can predict a lot of things. We can try to quarterback armchair what we think could happen. But in the end, the most powerful thing that we can do is ask the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who establishes nations and tears down nations to call out to him. And in doing so, we believe that he hears and that he responds and that oftentimes he's waiting for his people to ask. Uh, in fact, a Jewish famous rabbi from the first century said, you receive not because you ask not. So when you ask, ask in faith and it shall be given you. And so with that, Jonathan, if I have your permission, I'd like to yes. lead us in prayer. Yes. Okay, thank you. Well, gracious Heavenly Father, the Russian invasion and the unprovoked attack against Ukraine, as many of us recognize, is the largest military action on European soil since World War II. And Lord, this act of aggression not only signifies the loss, the tragic loss of U.S. leadership in the region and around the world, this emboldens the, the actions of other belligerent actors on the world stage. Lord, we never even mentioned what this is doing to the Chinese leadership looking at the American response of what's happening. And so, Heavenly Father, we recognize that when, uh, when, when righteousness disappears, uh, it leaves a vacuum that is filled by evil players. And so, Lord, we ask that you would thwart the actions of the wicked. May their plans fail and may peace prevail. May righteous leaders rise up and stop and block and push back against aggression, violence, war, suffering. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would watch over the most vulnerable, the weak, the aged, the children, and the young mothers. Heavenly Father, there are by some estimates about 200,000 Jews in the Ukraine, and it has been said by others, when trouble comes in the past, the Jews were often blamed. And so we ask for a special hedge of protection around the Jewish communities, embolden and empower the leaders of the Jewish communities in Ukraine as they seek ways to comfort and protect your chosen people. Help those who can make Aliyah and help Israeli leaders to find creative ways to bring physical deliverance to the Jewish population in Ukraine. Lord, many Russian citizens are against Putin's invasion of the Ukraine. Demonstrations have been held in major cities all across Russia. May this bear fruit. May their voice not be silenced. May Putin's designs be rejected by your sovereign hand. And may courage be found in the hearts of the men and women who deserve peace and not violence. Lord, may the allies of NATO get a backbone and stand in forceful solidarity and show a unified response against Russia's aggression. The bully only understands strength. Let NATO be strong. And finally, Lord, a prayer for the suffering. We pray for those who are suffering, Ukrainian citizens, Jewish communities. As a father of a soldier in harm's way, Lord, my heart goes out to the moms and dads, the wives and children of those soldiers that have been sent to fight, some voluntarily, some against their will. Lord, on both sides of the conflict, comfort those in grief and sorrow, and may the Messiah, the true Prince of Peace, come soon and establish rule and reign 
of peace and shalom. May the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Frank. Thank you, Elliot. Insightful, inspiring. And uh, thank you, everyone, for joining and listening. God bless you. If you've stayed with us this long, you deserve a reward. Beginning this year, the Genesis 1-2-3 Foundation is offering a special gift. Each month, we'll be giving away a special volume from Jonathan's Bookshelf. Please go to the Inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. When you comment and share the link to this program, we will select a winner at random. This month, we're giving a special book away, and I'm looking forward to seeing who will be our winner. We are grateful that this podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're in the area and need something, please pop in or just go to say hi, go say hi and thank them for helping make this program possible. Also, thank you to the Coin family for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider joining us to help continue the dialogue and build bridges. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or a special occasion, please be in touch at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments as part of a dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions you have about Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi program. Please share this with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are safe and healthy and send my blessings to you from right here in the Judean mountains. God bless you.